remain standing for our sermon text from Jeremiah 29 again. And I'm going to jump in at verse 4, Jeremiah's letter to the exiles in Babylon. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who were carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and dwell in them. Plant gardens and eat their fruit. Take wives and beget sons and daughters. And take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters, that you may be increased there and not diminished. And seek the peace of the city where I've caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it. For in its peace you will have peace. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are in your midst deceive you, nor listen to your dreams which you cause to be dreamed. For they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord. And I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord. And I will bring you to the place from which I cause you to be carried away captive. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we, go, we come to you in need of your grace as we meditate on this letter from you to the exiles and even to us, your people, two and a half millennia later. And so we pray that as we consider it, that we would grow in our hope, that we would grow in our understanding of your goodness toward us, your favor toward us, your fatherly care for us, and that we would rest in it, learn to rest in it. And we even pray that you would work in us this hour the hope of the resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, there's so much to mine from this passage. Uh, two weeks is not going to do it, but we, we are, we are going to move on and maybe come back to this passage. So don't anticipate that I'm going to say uh, even everything that I told you that I anticipated saying last week, uh, this week. It's a rich passage that sh shapes our faith in a certain kind of way and points us ahead to future hope. But the question I want to ask today, in light of that, is who are you 
and why are you here? I guess that's two questions bound up together. We're going to consider that today. Who are you and why are you? And I don't mean why are you here at church today. That could be part of that question. But I mean, more broadly, why are you here on planet Earth? What are you doing here? Why did God put you here? You know, we could also ask it this way. Why has he left you here? Why are you still here? God didn't have to put you here in the first place. You didn't have to exist. And he could have taken you out at any moment along the way up to now. So you're here for a reason. Until the day you die, you'll be here for a reason and you'll have a purpose for being here. God has a specific purpose for keeping you in this world, in this country, in this town, in your neighborhood, and at this time. But what is it? Why hasn't God taken you out of the world? It's a good question to come back to from time to time. Well, the exiles that, we just, that we've been reading about and thinking about who had been taken from Jerusalem to Babylon in 605 B.C., and then again in 597 B.C., and then ultimately again in 587, so a few different times, these exiles were not sure what their purpose was. And if you want to see how they thought about this, you could go to Psalm 137 and look at how they expressed their confusion and their despair even, maybe, at least initially. They really didn't think they had a reason for living anymore. Now, Psalm 137 is a good expression of how they felt. It, there was nothing wrong with expressing that as long as they didn't stay there and let it fester into self-pity. But it reveals that there's genuine confusion, dissonance in their hearts and in their minds about what is going on. This is not part of the story that we thought God was telling and so they didn't know, they, they didn't think they really had a reason for going on. That's why Jeremiah sends a letter recorded for us in Jeremiah 29. They needed to be reminded of reality. They needed to be reminded of their identity and their mission, their purpose. They had been torn from their homeland, ripped away from a way of life that went back many generations, even many centuries They'd been pushed out of that land that God had given to them, promised them, and given to their ancestors. And going all the way back to Abraham and the promise that God made to Abraham many, many centuries earlier. Now they were in a godless, the godless city and culture of Babylon, away from friends and family who were left behind, away from their childhood homes, away from the temple, which would be destroyed eventually anyway, away from everything they knew. Why? Why didn't God just, just kill them with the Babylonian army? Why was he leaving them on earth? What, what could they accomplish as a tiny minority living in a pagan culture, city of Babylon? What was God's purpose for having them there these 70 years, which 
which think about it, for most of them, that meant the rest of their lives. In fact, the mo- for most of them, it meant most of their lives. You know, so these kids, these teenagers, would, would likely die in Babylon. What, what was the purpose? Jeremiah 29 shows us God's intention in sending them to exile. It wasn't an accident. God had a plan for the Israelites living in Babylon. In, in New Testament terms, they were to be salt and light. Remember, Jesus uses that metaphor in the Sermon on the Mount. They were to be a city on a hill. Their identity remained the same. It was fixed. They were children of Yahweh. Bought, purchased by God. And their purpose was to be the city of God in the midst of the city of man. God had not forsaken them. He had given them a purpose. Not take, he had not taken away a purpose. He had given them a purpose. Yes, it's also true God was judging them. Yes, they were reaping what they had sown. They were facing the consequences of their rebellion, their idolatry, their breaking of covenant with God. But God had not abandoned them. That was not God's response to abandon them in their sin. He was still with them, and he even had a specific calling on their lives. Their sin did not disqualify them from being able to serve God moving forward. The reason, there was a reason they were still around. And it was possible for them to glorify God moving forward. That's why he says in verse 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for shalom and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. God had not forgotten. He had not abandoned. It's easy to forget that when God brings about difficult circumstances especially, right? But we must remember he's with us especially in those circumstances. He not only remains with us during our trials, during hard providences, but he also has a very specific idea in mind for how we can serve him and bring glory to him in the midst of that situation. And it's specific every time. It's specific to you, and it is something specific that you can do. Another way of saying this is that God always has you where he wants you, and there's always an obedient next step that you can take no matter how bad you've been up to that point. You're always a child of God, and as a child of God, there's always a way forward. Always a path, always a path to glorify God. You always have access to the eternal pleasures that are God's right hand. This is true when your marriage or your family doesn't look the way you wanted it to look at this point in your life. It's true when you live or work 
in a place where you don't belong, where you're an oddball. It's true when you feel like God keeps denying you the desires of your heart. It's true when others don't appreciate you and it's hard to figure out how you could be useful or happy in this life. It's true when it feels like God, even God has abandoned you, that he has exiled you from happiness, from any sense of significance and meaning, and even from his good pleasure. And it often does feel like that. It certainly felt that way for the, for the Israelites in Babylon. The lie from the enemy during those times is that you are devoid of purpose, done with life, of no use to God, or anyone perhaps, hopelessly separated from joy and contentment. Have you ever felt like that? But God's word says that the child of God is never put into this kind of situation. Paul says in Philippians 1 that he would love to die and be with Christ, but he also says that, there, that he has an even greater desire which is ultimately to magnify Christ. But he says it this way, Christ shall be honored, magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And if I am to live in the flesh, well, that means fruitful labor for me, Paul says. This is the attitude that the child of God must have. And so did you know that you are never more than one second away from being able to magnify Christ in your body, whether it's through life or death? From one, never more than one step away from doing God's will for your life. God always has a purpose for you. Every moment, he has a calling on your life. Every second of every day, a specific calling on your life. And never more than one step away from repentance. You're never more than one step away from walking in the Spirit and glorifying God and loving Him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That, that should be comforting. That's how it, it's a testimony to God's graciousness. So it's never too late to take up your cross that God has given you Instead of wallowing in self-pity and self-loathing, when the thought goes through your head that it's too late in life for me, there's no point in trying because I've messed up too much, that's a lie from the enemy. It's not from God. So no matter what kind of exile you're in, whether it was caused by your sin, someone else's sin, usually it's a combination God always has a will for you to glorify him and, the good news, a way for you to glorify him. Did you hear that? He always wills for you to glorify him and he always has a way for you to do it. It would be depressing indeed if, God, if God's will was for you to glorify him, but there was no way to do it. You've messed up. It's just beyond the point of no return. But where there's a will, 
there's a way, always. Where, where there's God's will, there's always a way. And that way may include repentance. That's sometimes the difficulty here. It certainly did for these exiles in Babylon. It, it may include believing God's word anew as it did for the exiles. But you are never in a situation that prevents you from honoring God. Never will you be at the point in your life where it's impossible for you to magnify Christ at that very second. So the exiles in Babylon were tempted to believe not only that God had judged them, which he had, but they were tempted to believe not only that God had judged them, but also that he had abandoned them. Tempted to believe that their lives were effectively over. But in reality, their calling from God, the calling that would define the rest of their lives on this earth, had actually just begun. It had just begun. It hadn't ended. It had just begun. So God didn't just allow them to go into exile. He had actually sent them into exile. And the opening line of the letter that I read from verse 4, Jeremiah says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Actively sent. God had chosen these men and women and boys and girls to live in Babylon for the remainder of their of their existence on this earth. This was their calling. This was their God-ordained purpose. You see, these people only had one life to live. And God had decided that they would have to live that one life in a country they didn't want to be in, in a place they naturally despised, in a city where they didn't know how to find joy and contentment in a place where depression and hopelessness often gained the upper hand. In a place where the culture and the politics and the religions and the values were rotten to the core. In a place that was very far from home. But they had a purpose. They had a way to honor God. In verse 5, remember from last week, God tells them, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Settle in, in other words, and make a life. This is your new home. This is your new life. It's the life I've chosen you. Make the best of it. And then in verse 7, he goes even further and tells them to seek, actively seek, search out the shalom, the peace, the well-being, the welfare, the, the comprehensive welfare of Babylon and pray for that shalom to happen by God's grace, but also through you. The Hebrew word shalom can be translated as peace, well-being, welfare. But as, as we talked about last week, <clears throat> shalom just isn't just inner peace or you know, the cessation of hostilities. Something like it's a total thriving. It occurs in a person or a city, or a family, when every aspect of that person or city or family is flourishing by God's grace as a result of the, of the gospel of Christ. Shalom happens when God's transforming grace touches everything. 
And shalom can only happen in a person or in a family or in a city or in a nation or in a church or in a marriage or in a friendship when that person or family or city or nation or church or marriage or family is centered on God rather than man. On God rather than man. During the first half of the fifth century, St. Augustine of Hippo, probably the the most well-known theologian in church history, he wrote a book called The City of God, which is a theological interpretation of history. And Augustine saw in Scripture that ever since sin entered the world, there have been two cities that exist alongside each other, the city of God and the city of man. The history of the world is a tale of two cities. And this is a scriptural idea, too. He makes some specific, certain applications that are very relevant to his time living in the, the Roman Empire. But this tale of two cities that we see in scripture will not end until Jesus returns. Tale of two kingdoms, we might even call it. The city of God exists in those places where God is at the center. The the city of man exists where man has put himself at the center. The city of man operates on pride and ambition and recognition and selfish gain and power. It's out to make a name for itself. And every citizen in the city of man is also out to make a name for himself. The the Tower of Babel, since we're talking about Babylon here, we, we could go all the way back to the Tower of Babylon in Genesis 11. And that's a manifestation of the city of man, right? So the city of man exists as a result of the fall. It would not have existed otherwise. In Genesis 11, 4, these God-haters say, come, let us build who? A city? Ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for who? God? No, ourselves. The city of man is a place where everyone is always exhausted because everyone is always trying to build a city and a tower and a reputation, a name. There's no rest, no shalom, because everyone's always busy reaching for the next accomplishment, always looking for the next thing to fill that hole that, only, that can only be filled by God. In the city of man, no one knows who they are. And so they're always trying to establish an identity, to invent or reinvent an identity, and then to project it. It's tiring. No one has peace. And so they try to find it by accomplishing more and climbing higher and trying harder. The city of man is about human effort, human power, human achievement, and it's exhausting. Maybe you know the exhaustion. 
But the city of God that God is establishing is fueled by the peace and power of God. The city of God exists where people are making a name not for themselves because they've already been given a name. They already have an identity, but for the Lord, making a name for God, where people exist to serve rather than be served, where people love the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and love their neighbor as themselves, whether that neighbor is lovable or not. The city of God is not defined by human effort, but by God's grace. It's a place not of exhaustion, but of joy, rest, contentment in the Lord. The city of God is made up of people who don't have to make a name, a reputation for themselves, who don't have to prove themselves. The the, the citizens of the city of God, or we could say the citizens of God's kingdom, those who have entered into the kingdom of God, as Jesus puts it, don't have to try and establish who they are because they know who they are. Their identity is fixed, secure, and no set of circumstances could ever change it. In the city of God, people are not consumed with their own interests, but with the interests of others. They aren't exhausted with the demands that come with being a citizen of the city of man. And so they're free from that bondage, free then to give themselves to others. In the city of man, people come to get your life for mine. How can you benefit me? But in the city of God, people come to give my life for yours. How can I serve you? And and here's the point. 2,600 years ago, God called these Jerusalem exiles to be strangers and aliens in a city of man, to, to manifest the city of God right in the middle of the city of man. It didn't get any more city of man than Babylon. This was a new opportunity. An opportunity. That's what God's trying to help them to see. This is an opportunity for these Jews to move forward in their mission to the world. It wasn't moving backward in spite of their sin and their rebellion. God is still moving them forward. God was putting his city behind enemy lines, right in the heart, right in the heart of the city of man. They even invited them in and brought them in, provided the transportation. Would they wallow in self-pity at this providence? Or would they embrace their lot in life to the glory of God? These questions that they had answered 2,600 years ago are very similar to the ones that we have to wake up every morning and answer ourselves. It's as if God was saying to these Israelites, here's your chance to be salt and light. Here's your chance to be the city of God on a hill. Don't Don't hide yourself from the world under a bushel. Don't collapse into self-loathing. Don't 
waste time pining for the life that I have not ordained for you. That I did not decide before the creation of the world for you to have. This is your life. It's the only one you're going to get. It's a good one. It's not what you would have picked. But if you trust me, if you're faithful in this place, then there's unimaginable joy now and joy waiting for you. And the joy that you can experience now at my right hand is a foretaste of that joy that you will have in my presence forevermore. You can have a foretaste of it now by believing that my presence in your life and my will for your life are the wisest of all possibilities, the best. Fellow exiles, fellow pilgrims, do you need to come to terms with the life that God has ordained for you? Maybe not in every aspect. It's easy to be content with this thing or that thing or this situation. But are there areas that you need to come to term with, terms with? Do you need to stop sinfully craving the life that God hasn't chosen for you? Perhaps you, you wish you existed in a different time. Sometimes I do. In a culture with different values, in a family with more money, in a marriage with more romance, the, the list could go on. God is calling you to forsake your self-pity and embrace your lot in life to the glory of God. You have a job to do. You have a purpose. You have a mission. You have a calling. And you can't do it until you accept the reality you've been given rather than the one you want. Accept that you're in exile, in a sense. Not the same kind of exile that we're talking about here with the, in Babylon. But you're a stranger and an alien and an exile. That's New Testament language applied to the people of God. And that's our story. Accept it so that you can move into God's calling in your life. Accept that in this life, you're always going to be a stranger who feels strange. You're always going to have a tinge of homesickness, maybe more than a tinge at times. Paul did. He, he, he made it very clear, and God decided to preserve it. He inspired it, his, his thoughts on how he would love to be at home with the Lord. That's normal to have that homesickness just as the Israelites did because you're not home in the full sense. You're a foreigner on earth. Once you content yourself with your unideal lot in life and every lot, every situation is less than perfectly ideal. Once you content yourself with the reality God has determined for you, that he predestined for you before he created anything. 
you put yourself in a position to be filled with shalom, to overflowing, and out of your heart will flow rivers of shalom. That, that, those rivers of life that Jesus talks about in John 7, it's rivers of shalom. That, that's what life is. It's that fullness of life that the word shalom encapsulates so well. The early church knew how to live faithfully as the city of God. And so we, we can be inspired by their faithfulness. We, they weren't perfect, and you can tell stories of unfaithfulness too. But there are plenty of stories of faithfulness in the city of man, amidst the city of man, especially in the early church. During the middle of the third century, starting in around AD 250, there was a, a great plague. And it swept across the Roman Empire. And it went on for many years, over a decade, more like two. And archaeologists, they, they say that this plague, may, they don't know, it's a lot of speculation. It may have been caused by something like the measles or smallpox, not sure. Whatever it was, it claimed the lives of thousands of people every day year after year. And during one period, some reported that thousands were dying every day just in the city of Rome alone. I don't know how long that lasted, but that's one report. Some thought humanity might be coming to an end. Many thought the world might be coming to an end. But during this time, a lot of the pagan priests fled the city for the countryside, and the pagan temples closed down, particularly in Rome. And they're, they're, you know, apparently they're, the message was their gods didn't seem to care about the plight of the Roman citizens. But the Christians, however, demonstrated the mercy and the love of their God, extending mercy to the love, to, to the sick, mercy and love of God to the sick. And one of the prominent pastors of the third century, actually one of the bishops, he wrote this. And there are many comments like this, many records that testify to this sort of thing. He says, most of our brethren showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ and with them departed this life serenely happy, for they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Again, we can imagine that not every Christian was, was this faithful, and there were probably non-Christians who did similar things. But this is a testimony that you can read from various places, various witnesses. These Christians were able to do this because they were citizens of the city of God, and they had something to offer, something to give in this situation that no one, that, that, that no one else did, that the pagans didn't have as citizens of heaven. They had shalom. Because they knew who they were, and who they belonged to, and, and where they were headed, where they were going, 
They knew how to lay down their lives for the city of man in a particular kind of way with a particular kind of joy, a particular kind of hope. They didn't have to live for this life because they had the life to come. And in that life, everything they didn't get in this life would be given to them. They had the perspective that this life is a tiny fraction of the whole story, if it can even be called a fraction, since it's eternal after that. These Christians were able to respond selflessly. They were able to sacrifice their lives for the joy set before them because they had been freed from the exhausting task of serving themselves and making a name for themselves and making a life for themselves and trying to make everything in this life fulfill all of their hopes and their dreams. These self-giving believers knew, experienced the shalom of God. They found their identity and sense of purpose in Christ. So they weren't defined by their careers and worldly successes. As, as Revelation 12 puts it, they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. In that context, it's persecution. But in this context, they knew that death was a, was a good probability, good likelihood of death. Many citizens of the city of man were nursed to health by these Christians. And through their ministry of love and sacrifice, thousands of citizens of the city of man converted to Christ. And, and this was possible. This kind of ministry was possible because these early Christians knew who they were. They knew who, who they belonged to and they knew where they were going. They weren't looking to get a name because God had given them a name. They weren't looking for purpose and meaning here and now in temporary things because God had given them an eternal purpose. They were able to bring God's shalom to the city of man in this time of crisis because God's shalom had already gripped them and transformed them from the inside out. We're not in that situation, but we kind of are. You can offer this shalom to others, same kind of shalom. It's the same God, the same peace, same gospel, and you can offer it to others. Here's the connection point. When it has worked its way into you, into your bones and your blood, into the depths of your soul, the peace that passes all understanding doesn't depend on where you live or who your neighbors are, how many friends you have, or who you married. It doesn't depend on circumstances at all. You're not more likely to have shalom when things are going well. You know, when your government is, is being fair and your finances are healthy. You're, you're also not less likely or less able to have shalom when things are going poorly. When your leaders are corrupt 
and creaturely comforts are almost non-existent. Shalom isn't more attainable when you're living the good life or less attainable when you're living in Babylon. The peace of God in Christ, as Paul puts it, transcends all of that. You either have it or you don't, regardless of circumstances. Christ is our example here. He proves that, that what I'm saying is true. In the fullness of time, the Heavenly Father sent His Son into exile. The Son willingly left His throne in heaven, His glory in heaven, and sent Him to a place and to a people that did not accept Him, that did not want Him, that were not like Him, and that didn't like Him. The eternal Son willingly left His home. He willingly left the headquarters of the city of God. And he lived as one of us in the city of man. He took on our flesh. He built homes and tended gardens in our world. He lived in our city. He came to Babylon. His mission, just like the mission of those exiles in Babylon, was to bring shalom to the fallen city of man. And he prayed for that shalom, the shalom of his people. And he sought, he searched after that shalom. And then the climax of his life, he purchased that shalom on a cross for us. He took up his cross and died to make lasting shalom possible for his people. And the Son of God was able to do this. He was able to take up his cross faithfully because he knew who he was and what his purpose was. He knew who his father was. He didn't have to worry about making a name for himself because his sonship with God was locked in eternally. And so he could make a name for his father. Did you know the same is true for you if you're a child of God, if you're a son of God, a daughter of God? Did you know the same is true for you? Your sonship with God is locked in eternally if you belong to Christ. His father is your father. Jesus knew that he did not have to earn his father's acceptance and love. You know, through human effort. That, that existed eternally. He didn't exhaust himself by running the rat race, you know, by doing and achieving and being in accordance with worldly standards and expectations. He didn't live under the, the self imposed oppression that defines the city of man, which is why his life and death continue to transform the city of man. He came to give, not to get. He came to serve, not to be served. He came to seek the shalom, not just of Babylon, but of the whole world. Jesus wasn't ambitious. Though he was in the form of God, 
he didn't regard equality with God as something to be grasped or something to be used and leveraged for his own purposes. He was content doing his father's will the way his father wanted him to accomplish that will. He was willing to give up his own will. He was content with his lot as a stranger, an alien, an exile on this earth, and he never wished, pined for, a better life. Jesus was at peace with God. He knew who he was and why he was here. And he knew also, he he had a hope of sorts. He knew this wasn't the final destination, not, not by a long shot. The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, was in his bones and in his blood. He looked ahead at the big picture and the eternal perspective rather than being fixed on temporary things. The shalom that Jesus had when he was a stranger and an alien on this earth is no less yours than it was his. He's given it to you. You have full access to it. You don't have to wait for it. It's yours to have. And it's yours to give away. It's yours to have and it's yours to give away. Jesus was in exile for the joy set before him. And and you can be as well. The reason Jesus experienced deep shalom all the time And the reason he had so much to give away is that his life was living proof that Jeremiah 29, 13 is true. You will seek me and find me, experience me when you seek me with all your heart. That's what Jesus did with all his heart all the time. Jesus never stopped seeking his father, which meant he never stopped finding, experiencing communing with his father. So the promise to every exile, the guarantee God has given every stranger and alien on the earth is that those who seek him with all their heart, which means with an undivided heart, without reservation, without holding out or holding on to things, with no part of your heart, hanging on to idolatrous wishes and dreams with with no thought of your own will for your life, those who seek God with all their desires will find God and experience his shalom. And they will bring that shalom with them wherever they go, wherever they live, wherever they happen to be, wherever... God happens to send them, whether they wanted to go there or not. Brethren, seek God. Seek God today, right now, beginning at this moment, with all your heart. Remember, it's never too late to begin, no matter what, what you've done or not done up to this point, up to this day, up to this hour. Seek God today with all your heart, and you won't come up short. You won't come up empty. You won't be disappointed. At the end of that search, the Lord himself promises to be at the end of that kind of search. He gives you himself so that you can share him with others.
Let's pray and ask for God's help in doing this. God, we thank you that just as you were gracious to these, your rebellious people over two and a half millennia ago in giving them an identity and a purpose, a calling, even giving them your presence in spite of their sin, we thank you that you, you are gracious in the same way to us. And we rely on you to help us to seek the shalom of the place where we live. And we ask you to help us to seek you as we seek that shalom. So that as we find you, we have your shalom to give. We need you to accomplish this in us. You've called us to do it, so please accomplish your good purposes for the name of Christ. Amen.